Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. It's my honor to welcome to the Morning Glory Project Leah Lax. Leah refers to herself as a refugee from extreme religion. Her memoir Uncovered How I Left the Hasidic Life and Finally Came Home is the only gay memoir ever to come out of the Hasidic world. She's also the mother of seven children. Uncovered was on many best of lists. Susan Stamberg read it on NPR and it is soon to be an opera by premier American composer Lori Leitman. Leah's next book project is Not From Here, about how she rediscovered America through stories told to her by immigrants and refugees and why that matters. Leah Lax, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so glad you're here. What a pleasure to be here, Betsy. So Leah, Uncovered is, I'm going to confess, it's one of the most moving books that I've read in a while. And I didn't expect in any way to find myself in your pages because our backgrounds have little to do with one another in terms of faith and culture and location and geography, none of those things. But I found myself in your pages as we so often do when there are universal truths in there. Can you tell our listeners what a bit about what Uncovered is? Betsy, I was a middle American kid born and raised in Dallas grew up in public school. I think you can still hear a little bit of Texas in my voice. <laughs> but really, really, I was a child of um, a Jewish immigrant family, second generation, but we all were enmeshed with one another. A lot of people left the East Coast and migrated to Texas back in the Depression. So I was born here. And I think that being from an immigrant family had something to do with it because I never really knew who we were, but I really felt different. Uh, I really felt different because, first of all, we kept our secrets about the chaos and even abuse within our uh, overly enmeshed family. And because uh, subtle, polite anti-Semitism was still very much alive in the world in which I grew up, Let's not forget that neighborhoods all over, not just the South, but up through the broad middle of our country, had covenants, had uh, neighborhood rules for way into, into, uh, way into my uh, growing up years that said no blacks and no Jews. And so we made our own communities, and we um, were very uh, insulated. So in public school, I felt I didn't understand why I felt sort of 
second tier or third tier socially, um, I used to examine myself in the mirror. To see what was wrong with you? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And let me be clear, you did not grow up in a Hasidic family. You grew up in a what you might call a, a culturally Jewish family, a secularly Jewish family. Exactly. So how did you find your way into the Hasidic world then? Um, I, they, the, it, Judaism is not an evangelical religion by definition, not in, you know, the last maybe two millennia. But there's this one movement, one branch of the ultra-Orthodox Hasidim that is evangelical. And they had just started spreading out all over the country. And I met them. And they did that, really. A lot of the whole Hasidic phenomenon everywhere is, is a, a reaction to the Holocaust. They're trying to, they're trying to rebuild, to survive. And that's probably what drove this movement, to become evangelical. But when I met them, they basically said, we are your roots. We are who you truly are. We, and only we have preserved it. Well, immigrants don't talk about their past. So what did I know? I, to me, they were revealing the secret that I always knew was there. I was very drawn to them. The secret that you didn't have roots in the rest of the country, that, that your roots were with this group. Exactly. So that girl that looked in the mirror to see what was wrong with her and why she didn't fit suddenly felt like she fit? Um, that's what they told me, and that was enticing. But there's another piece here, because I grew up in an era when um, there was no vocabulary in the work, you know, out in public for being gay. And I was growing up in a very polite, very Baptist kind of society. Um, everything went unstated. Everything was nuanced. And I, that was another reason why I felt different no matter what. I mean, you know, all my friends were flirting with the boys and I was going, who are you and how do you do that? I didn't get it. Neither did I know why these budding girls made me nervous because I was attracted to them. And Every gender segregated society, religious society, is very ironically, incredibly homoerotic, right? They keep the women with only with the women, the men only with the men. Well, and, and it's, it's paradoxical, isn't it? Because it's keeping the genders separate to suppress heterosexuality <laughs> <laughs> or, or heterosexual encounters, I guess I would say, but it allows many faiths uh, then allow homosexuality to hide. I'm thinking, you know, I grew up, I am no longer practicing, but I grew up in a Catholic tradition. And, you know, where did a gay man who didn't want to get married hide out? Where did a gay woman hide out? You know, it was in the, the convents and the monasteries, right? And there was just such suppression. So so the other layer of your story that touched me too, and, and perhaps this is why I found myself in your pages and why so many people who, who come from any cultural background might find themselves in your pages, is that you came from a household that was troubled in itself, was chaotic. There was mental illness, there was abuse, there was stuff going on. And the tightly ordered, organized, rule-based, black and white thinking in the Hasidic community seemed to appeal to you? It was very silly. It was safe. Predictable is safe. Mothers were mothers and could be relied on rather than a mother who was never home. Fathers were fathers. 
They followed their rules rather than a father who was mentally ill and secretly sexually abusive. I didn't know till I was 30 years old that my father was sexually abusing my sister um, and never verified, but have weird sort of body vague memory of him possibly maybe once raping me as a very young child. Mm. Um, but he he turned his attention to my sister and kept it there till she was 16 years old. I didn't know this was going on. And here was a world where there were rules about those kinds of things. And the men were there because of their devotion to the rules. How safe is that? Well, it, it is, but it's also ironic too, isn't it? Because in order to be safe, it seemed that you had to shave off pieces of yourself to fit into this new culture, to fit into the faith. Pieces of myself I hadn't yet identified. Mm. Well, and so that would refer, of course, to your sexuality, to your molest history and those things. But I was also thinking of of your early training in your family as an artist, as a musician, a family that valued those kind of cultural artistic expressions and that that's not so welcomed in, and I'm ignorant of the culture. So if I misspeak, you can help correct me. But my understanding is that, that anything secular is not so good. And the art part I fought for, I convinced myself that I could go into that world and still be an artist. And even when I agreed to an arranged marriage, I said to the young man who was, I didn't know and had never touched, but the rabbi had deemed us uh, worthy of one another. I said to him, I, I need a space that's just for my art, that's just for my music. And he said, I would love that. That clinched the deal. Hmm. I thought that if he agreed, and he loved music, if he agreed, that's all I needed because I was in a world where the, you know, the, the man's word was law. Um, and at the time when we first married, we were still in the university at the university. We hadn't yet moved into a Hasidic community. We didn't understand what um, that that monolithic peer pressure is like when you don't have a, a a group of people with where unique ideas are valued. Uh, social status comes from thinking and acting like everybody else so that you become really embarrassed to stand out. Conformity becomes the comfortable, right? Right. But that and, you know, the fact that we were allowed to have use birth control and I had seven kids in 10 years who had time for art or music. Between the two and between worrying about my children's reputation, that's all it took to repress any uh, uh, natural sexual feeling on my part for women any and and chase my cello to the back of a closet which stood for many years so so even though at the beginning of your marriage you thought you could keep your art and your music there was a point at which you put the cello in the closet can you tell me about what that felt like for you that moment of putting it away okay we only have a half hour and you're going to make me cry. <laughs> I know. It's a dangerous thing this time limit. I can tell you, Betsy, that when I was faced with writing um, the the words for an opera on Uncovered, a book that's 356 pages, and, you know, I got, you know, an opera has very, very few words. It was going to be maybe one 
you know, one hundredth of the words in the book. I said to myself, what are the key scenes without which I cannot have this story? Because there are hundreds of scenes in a book. And that scene of putting the cello away was one I came to that was a key, key, key turning point. And so in the opera, that's a scene in which young Leia has a closet standing open with line now in in long, skirt, long full skirts and you know, and and, bla- and long sleeve blouses, in which she takes her cello out and one at a time, and loses the strings one at a time, and thanks her instrument for being the voice of her heart. I uh, imagine that that production as having ch- a lone cello that with a theme that keeps coming up every time. Leia tries to turn away from her um, deepest feelings. Um, and I, I think the memory of that music is part of what saved me in that world. I try to imagine Leia being a foreigner in your own body, and so, so to speak, in that you, you were a lesbian but didn't have even the vocabulary of the concept of what that meant. And yet, and, and with no desire that maybe a cisgender or straight woman might fantasize about having a baby someday and all that. You didn't have that. And yet you became a mother of seven. I, I try to imagine what that, the, the conflict inside for you, which is the, the struggle with your own sexuality and perhaps gender issues. I'm not sure you, you can correct my vocabulary if I'm asking, saying it wrongly, but also then of course, loving your children and wanting the best for them and seeing, having them as fulfilling your role. Can you say something about that conflict? I I want you to not confuse a, a me as a gender fluid lesbian Mm -hmm. with a, uh, a transgendered person. Oh, no, 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 not at all. And the reason I say this is that I am unquestionably physically wholly female. Um, I'm a female attracted to other other females. I'm physically female. In my mind, I dream sometimes that I'm male, sometimes I've, I'm female. That's that's sort of about attitudes and feelings and right. you know stuff like that. That's less, That's not as tangible. Physically there, so that once I, I yeah, I, I had was very ambivalent about having children in the beginning. Um, but once I found myself pregnant, I was utterly in love. Mm. I was never ambivalent about uh, having that child, and they became my my purpose in that world. Mm. Well, and so much of what you did was on their behalf. You didn't want to shame them or damage their reputation that would impede their own getting good marriages and having success in the community. So, so my, my confusion was not about gender identity so much as that you weren't somebody that fantasized about giving birth and being pregnant and that 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 wasn't something you sought like so many might. But ultimately, I did seek it. Like I, at the beginning, I didn't want to get pregnant. But once a couple of years had passed, I wanted a child very much. Hmm. I threw away the we 
you know, we, we got, uh, I was so up distraught in the beginning over getting pregnant that we sought the uh, special dispensation from a rabbi to be allowed to use birth control just for my mental health. And ultimately, I took that diaphragm and I threw it away myself. So, you know, you're describing the beginning of that process, but it was a process toward um, wanting those children very much. Which kind of, it kind of echoes a little bit more of your story, which is that unlike somebody who might have been born into the Hasidic faith, you volunteered, you you put yourself there, and then you put yourself into the position of, of becoming pregnant. So it was a, a continuous <laughs> volunteerism, I guess, in <laughs> yes, a way. You were not drafted, um, and, and you weren't, unlike, I, I know that there was a document, or not a documentary, but a a, a drama based on a memoir called Unorthodox that recently aired. And in that situation, that was somebody who had been born and raised into the faith and, and was in some ways felt captive there, physically held so in some ways. That that didn't describe your experience. It sounds like this was something that you felt compelled to put yourself into for a host of reasons. Then, then you're a mom, you're, you have seven children. You've voluntarily taken the role of, of female in a very segregated environment, even segregated within the marriage in lots of ways. Can you tell me what it was like as that started to no longer feel like it fit for you? Well, first of all, uh, well, I, there's three things I, I, I would say here. First were the uh, erotic lesbian dreams that, you know, kept creeping out in the night. I was good at suppressing them in the daytime. And I was in such a gender-segregated world that I would wake up and say, that's funny, why did I dream I was a man? Because to me, there was only male or female. So if I was making love to a woman in my dreams, then... You had to be male. So it wasn't gender dysphoria in any way. It it was... Well, not the dreams. Not the dreams. You know, there were other times when I was actually male in my dreams. They weren't sexual dreams. But, you know, in, in, I, I, it took me a long time to recognize those. And this was before that. Mm. Um, so there was the dreams. There was the memory always of the music and of my mother as an artist and of her passion in being in her creative life and quite passionate that I should have a creative life at all she, as well. She had sort of singled me out among her three kids as the one who was going to follow in her path. And it it just crushed her when I became Hasidic because of the loss of my art. She had dreams for me. I couldn't forget that. So there were the dreams. There were my mother's dreams. And uh, then there were my children because they became my great uh, purpose In living that life, I was going to keep them safe. They were going to have a safe childhood that I didn't have. And I was going to maximize their potential and their their freedom to choose and make the most of their lives, something also that I I felt I had been restricted from as a child. But they were getting older, and the opposite was happening. They weren't fitting in their world. I have some pretty brilliant maverick type children i don't know why and (laughs) perhaps their genes (laughs) and they were fighting it and some of them were very unhappy and the the older ones 
or entering adolescence, that wonderful time of grandiosity and dreaming and thinking you could be anything in the world and all these choices are before you. And they were being, their school system was intentionally gender segregating and repressing them 10 times more at that phase of life. Basically, these kids weren't allowed in adolescence. This crushed me. I was like, oh, my God, what did I do? So those three things, my dreams, my mother's dreams, and seeing not how I was being deprived, but how my children were being deprived, because I had voluntarily deprived myself for their sake, those three were really driving me to the point where I I developed uh, insomnia pretty bad. Could Mm. not sleep. You know, that's a good way to avoid dreaming, too. Yeah. Well, when you're afraid of dreams, I think of people even with PTSD or other kind of circumstances where sleep is scary, right? Because that's when the memories or feelings or flashbacks arise. Okay, but we've gotten to the depth. Let's talk about getting back up. Yes. Well, that's that's exactly where we're going to go. So tell me, tell me about, there you were in despair, seeing what was happening with your children, having dreams that you were suppressing. How did you find your way? out. And what got you through? I started in the hours when I couldn't sleep. I started to write. I just made up stories. started to write fiction. I started to write. And as soon as I started putting words to a page, first of all, that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do in that kind of world. It's not, it's frowned upon to write fiction. Every message is prescribed in that world. And when you sit with a blank page in front of you, it's like a whole world. You can put anything you want on it. This is my first step away from the prescribed message into spontaneous thought, which is probably about the most dangerous thing there is for any social system. Artists are the very dangerous. This is why every society, every totalitarian society represses its artists. But little me, what did I know? You know, I, I was I saw myself as no power whatsoever. I didn't know how dangerous I could be. So I thought it was perfectly innocent to start writing stories that contained the secrets around me, the secrets of my family, the secrets I saw in my community, because I knew many of other families that were also holding back secrets of what was going on in their homes. I felt I was speaking for My sisters, you know, the women were very close. I wrote story after story. Um, And this captivated me. This sort of freedom, it became almost like drug-like. It was a heady thing. Mm. And then I would uh, print it out, but often after the sun was up, and erase it from the hard drive and hide the pages under my bed. Wow. So... The telling of stories was part of how you freed yourself. And then the library, I recall the scenes of going to the library and finding literature and poetry. Can you say a bit about that? Yes, I had tasted freedom in my mind, except that when I printed it out, I'd go back the next day and read it and go, why does it sound like polemic, like someone's preaching at me? I didn't know that that was the nature of our speech to one another all the time in that world. I couldn't hear myself, but I could hear the voice speaking back to me from the page. And I didn't like it. It sounded wooden and two-dimensional and not real. 
And I, I was like, how do I fix my writing? How do I fix it? So I went to the library. That's not a small deal because secular literature, it was forbidden for the men and frowned upon for the women. The men, their time was more precious because, you know, they could please God with Torah study, so we shouldn't waste it on something as useless as secular literature. The women, because they were devalued people, devalued literature was like, okay as long as they got dinner on the table. It was like a wink on the part of the community. I took advantage of being a woman with the library, but I didn't have time. I had to make carpool and I had kids waiting. And uh, So I went to the poetry section because poetry is short. <laughs> <laughs> and I figured I'll open these books at random. I didn't recognize any of the names, but any, any line that jumps out at me that speaks to me, I'll take it home. I'll deal later. So I started opening books. Well, the, I didn't know. I didn't even know what feminist poetry was. And who did you discover? <laughs> I discovered Adrian Rich, the, the radical lesbian poet. I discovered Rita Dove, the, who was our poet laureate, that spectacularly beautiful black woman poet who talked about of, of showing her daughter in poetry what what a woman's body is and, and with love so that she will know her becoming. I mean, I found poets like that. Leah, I have to tell you something. Just listening right now, listening to the tone of your voice <laughs> and the transformation that just happened when you started talking about this, I can feel what it must have felt like to come alive. It was about like that. It's it just it's so moving how it drives me crazy when people think of art as as extracurricular as opposed to part of the main thing that we should be learning <laughs> because it's it's life giving and I'm so so pleased that you found it and there's a point late in in your story when a friend says something to you <laughs> that seems to shake you up in a way, when a friend kind of learns all the ways in which you've been conforming to that life. And she says to you, how can a thinking person reconcile herself to all of that? Meaning all of that conformity and all of those rules, I guess, and all of those anti-feminist, anti-woman ways of looking at things. Tell me what happened when she said those words to you and how that felt. The woman speaking was Rose Ellen Brown, uh, uh, a writer that I greatly admired. I admired her so much that uh, after laboring forever on my own writing um, without any instruction, I um, uh, contacted her. She lived at the time in Houston and begged her to look at my writing. And she quite general. Her book was on the New York Times a bestseller list at that point. I mean, it was made into a movie with Meryl Streep. We're talking at that level. And she quite generously read my dribble and then started to mentor me and then moved away. We began a letter writing correspondence during which I was trying, I figured I would, um, I would justify for her ostensibly my way of life because I felt it, but I can tell you now, I felt it slipping away. So I would use words to try to hold on. She was the one who answered that line. How can a thinking person justify all of this? 
you know, when you talked about the poetry book a minute ago, I, I, I remembered being there and I was about to say, Betsy, when I held those books, they were electric. They buzzed in my hand. I mean, I couldn't let go. I couldn't, I couldn't sleep over them. I was losing sleep anyway, but now I had lines of poetry going through my head. Well, that line did that too. Well, in the interest of our finite time, I, I just have one more question for you. And that is you left the Hasidic world, uh, left your marriage uh, in what year was it? 2002. 2002. So 18, 19 years ago now. And tell me about your life after. Well, after 27 years in the kitchen and thinking I was a, uh, a woman with no, could no make no impact on the world other than through my children. Um, when I left, I went into the creative writing program at University of Houston and set out to have a career as a writer. Um, I don't know how I felt. I also taught. I don't know how I fell into it, but I, I uh, soon after wound up with a commission from Houston Grand Opera and wrote a major opera that was um, covered all over the country. And um, that set me off on a dual career. It took me back to music to playing my music, that's not professional, but to writing for music has put me with three major American uh, classical composers. It's been marvelous experiences. Um, and uh, I've written for many other things. I've had, you know, I've, for stage, books, published essays and, and short stories. This became, I've become the kind of driven, creative person that my mother was. Hmm. And you've also found love. I, I, I was like, oh, my God, did I leave that out? <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me back up. the Oscar speech and forgetting <laughs> to thank your wife, right? <laughs> do, you know, do you know why I became the driven, creative person that I was? Why is that? <laughs> because first I found love. Because I didn't know what that was to really have a good, healthy relationship, it requires a certain kind of spontaneity. That's what passion is. There was no place for that in the Hasidic world. Um, and I grew up there, so I had not experienced real love as an adult. And when I found it, I was floored. You mean I can have this kind of trust and spontaneity and security and no loneliness? Hmm. I think the secret to my endless creativity is the fact that we laugh every day. Wow. Well, Leah, the book Uncovered, and the title has so many meanings, the literal meaning of covering the covering of women that happens in so many extreme religions, uh, the uncovering of who you are. And I'm, I'm so happy and thrilled that you wrote this beautiful book. It is Uncovered by Leah Lacks, how I left Hasidic life and finally came home. You can connect with Leah by going to leahlaxauthor.com. That's L-E-A-H-L-A-X author.com. And I hope to have many conversations with you, Leah. And thank you for writing this gorgeous book and sharing so much of yourself here on the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much, Betsy. My conversation with Leah Lax was far too short for my tastes because 
there are literally dozens of other themes that I'd love to have had the time to explore with her, some of which I got to have in conversations prior to airing this episode. What really struck me is that how with memoir, what's always the case is that there are these very individual stories, this very idiosyncratic personal journey. And that's what she shares in her pages. Her story from coming from a chaotic and and broken family in lots of ways and finding comfort or meaning in the structure, finding, I don't know, peace in having sort of a an external skeleton of rules and behaviors that she could count on. The orderliness of it appealed to her. And then, of course, all that order was no longer just an environment. It became a cage because it asked her to suppress who she was, both her femininity and her sexuality. So that's a very idiosyncratic story, but it's also a universal one. I I couldn't believe it that I, that I don't have a Jewish background, I knew very little about the Hasidic faith, but that I could find myself in Leah's pages because I too, as a young person, sought black and white, yes and no meaning because I too came from a chaotic background. So there was some comfort in, in having, I don't know, a manual, <laughs> if you will, for how one would behave and when should behave. So I found myself in her pages and my guess is lots of you will too. But there's also another layer, which is more of a, a cultural layer and an over, overarching theme. And that's reflected in the title of her book, Uncovered. So many extreme religions, gosh, I'm hesitating to say the words, but I'm going to say it. So many extreme religions simply ask women to hide, to cover themselves, to suppress who they are, to cover their bodies so that they're not distracting or tempting in other words, it's their responsibility, somebody else's reaction to their, the form that God gave them. They're asked to lower their voices. They're asked to defer to the leadership of men. So in most extreme religions, and I'm not talking about faith communities in total, I'm talking about the extreme versions of religion. And I like to think of those as different things, faith and religion. But extreme religions, I can't think of one that doesn't in some way oppress women or sexuality, certainly homosexuality, often suppressing creative thought, creative expression, art. And I'm fascinated that it was art and music that was also the key that helped Leah to unlock herself and to step away from her faith that she said when she held her cello in her hand, it it buzzed in her hands. <laughs> it's kind of a beautiful image, isn't it? Her book is being translated into Arabic. So I imagine women who are shrouded, perhaps even in burqas, finding a copy of it and reading it. I wonder what the ripple effect will be when different women all over the world find their stories in these pages. I'll hope for that as an extra bloom. Thank you so much 
for listening to the Morning Glory Project. Wherever you are, however you're living, I hope that you are uncovered. I hope that you are fully who you are and that you are finding a way to be big and bold and blooming. <laughs>